Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're going to be discussing and exploring Chapter 15, The Difficult Human Existence, Sickness, Aging, and Death. This is in the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana. We use this book in the group learning program to explore the teachings of Gautama Buddha so that we can learn and then practice the teachings on this path to enlightenment, training the mind to this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. Well, today we're going to be discussing the life story of Gautama Buddha, as well as these four observations that Gautama Buddha made that ultimately motivated him to progress on this journey to enlightenment, but which are also the difficult aspects of this human existence. So we're going to be discussing those in detail along with his life story. Everything that I'm going to be sharing with you today is essentially something that's been passed down from person to person to person to person for 2,500 years. Everything that I teach you in terms of the teachings that are meant to be the path to enlightenment to improve the condition of your mind on this path to enlightenment and that you implement as part of your daily life in your life practice, they come from the Pali Canon. The Pali Canon is the original source of Gautama Buddha's teachings where they captured his teachings and then they're shared from there as the original source. And we use those in the Theravada tradition and recognize them as the original source of his teachings. Although because of impermanence, those teachings themselves don't have everything that you would need in terms of attaining enlightenment. And that's why everyone needs a teacher in order to learn and practice the teachings because you wouldn't be able to just read the Pali Canon and attain enlightenment. You need guidance because you can't ask questions to a book, but also because these 45 volumes of books don't contain everything that you need in order to attain enlightenment because certain things have been lost over the 2,500 years of history. So that's why it's important to seek out a teacher where you can ask questions and gain insight based on someone's practice. And that's the second thing that I do in all the teachings that I share is not only do I source them in the Pali Canon, but I also practice the teachings and see the results that I experience. And that's how I know that what I'm studying in the Pali Canon is the truth and it actually works because it acquires wisdom and the condition of the mind gradually, gradually improved to the point where there's no longer any discontent feelings in my mind and I'm able to maintain this 
permanent mental state that is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, which is permanent. Then I also share these teachings with students and the students are making lots and lots of progress. I share these teachings through a book, audiobook, videos, podcasts, quizzes, online classes like this, as well as in-person classes and personal guidance. There's two programs that I teach, which is the group learning program, as well as the Polycanon and English study group, which is going to be starting in January. And then of course I teach in person, traveling around from place to place to place teaching. So I've confirmed what I've been teaching through the Polycanon, through my own practice, and then through sharing it with students and their reporting results as well. And then the fourth way that I confirm what it is that I share is Thai people here in Thailand will oftentimes find out that I'm teaching. And when I sit down with them, they start to ask me questions about what am I teaching? How am I describing it? What type of things do I share? And I share that with them based on their questions. And they say, wow, that's really interesting that you're teaching that because we know these enlightened master monks that we all go to in order to learn and practice the teachings at their temple because we know that they're enlightened and you're teaching the same thing that they're teaching. So I've confirmed everything that I share in these four ways and that's why I'm confident that I can lead you and guide you to enlightenment through these teachings because everything traces back to the source teachings of the Buddha these teachings work for me and improve the condition of my mind. They work for the students who dedicate time and effort to learn them and apply them in their life with confidence and effort. And the Thai people confirm with me that what they're learning in Thai from their Thai masters who are considered to be enlightened are the same things that I'm sharing as well. However, what I'm sharing with you today deviates from that. What I'm sharing with you in terms of the Buddha's life story is not in the Pali Canon. His life story has been handed down from person to person to person for 2,500 years. And what's really interesting about his story, even though we understand impermanence and nothing is fixed and there's not you know, one story that everyone in the world is ever going to actually know, we know that with impermanence, there's going to be variation in his life story. But from my experience, about 80 to 90% of the details of his story are somewhat common across all people. So there's this man who lived over 2,500 years ago, and his life story wasn't written down into his original teachings. Because remember, he wasn't about promoting himself. He wasn't about attaining fame or fortune or notoriety. He was about sharing the teachings that lead to enlightenment, improve the condition of your mind. So he wasn't about capturing or sharing or professing his life story and ensuring that that got captured somehow to be propagated forever. He and his disciples, the ordained and household practitioners, were only interested in learning and practicing the teachings that lead to enlightenment. So that's what ultimately got captured in the Pali Canon, not his life story. So when I share these teachings with you today, understand that what I share with you will probably deviate and be slightly different than what you may or may not have heard in other venues, whether it's other books or other teachers or videos that you might have watched, 
everybody kind of has a different perspective on what was the life of the Buddha. However, there are certain commonalities among all of these stories. And one of the best ways to know that this man absolutely lived and absolutely did share these teachings is to learn and practice his teachings. When you learn and practice his teachings and you see the improvements to the condition of the mind, there's no doubt that this man lived. There's no doubt that he actually lived and shared these teachings to benefit all of humanity because his teachings aren't based on belief. When teachings come out of belief and you just need to believe, 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 and you don't really know whether those beliefs were true or not until you die, well, people start to doubt whether this person actually existed or not, whether they truly existed in the world. Well, if you look around and you see all of these temples and all of these monks and all of these practitioners that are practicing these teachings, if you learn and practice his teachings and you see the results to the condition of the mind improving, then you will have no doubt that this man absolutely lived. He absolutely shared these teachings. He absolutely was the fully, perfectly enlightened Buddha, and he discovered the path to enlightenment. And you can walk that path and discover this enlightened mental state for yourself. Now, the individual details of the actual life story of the Buddha is pretty much just interesting to share and understand. In terms of the actual story itself, there are certain lessons that we can extrapolate from it that will kind of help you in your journey. But the story itself, it isn't required that you memorize the life story of the Gautama Buddha. It's just kind of a nice thing to know about this wonderful man who we admire and respect for his lifetime of dedication of teachings and that he persevered through his life in order to discover and then share these teachings with us so that we can now benefit from them today. So it's a really nice thing to understand, you know, grandpa's story or great grandpa's story. It's kind of nice to know what they were up to during their lifetime. So Gautama Buddha lived so long ago that it's kind of nice to kind of humanize him because in a lot of communities and a lot of places, they really venerate Gautama Buddha and place him up so high on a pedestal and they almost worship him. And some people even consider him a god or an avatar. But Gautama Buddha was in fact a human being and he never was interested in anybody worshiping him or praising him or having fame or notoriety. His only interest was to help people to learn and practice the teachings to liberate the mind. So I think on this journey to enlightenment that you're on and you're on this path to enlightenment, it only makes sense to learn some things about this gentleman's life and understand what his life was really like. But again, if what I'm sharing with you is a bit different than what you've heard before, that's okay. Just learn some of the other things that you haven't heard before and you can expand your understanding of this gentleman's life. So thank you for joining for today's class session. We're going to be talking about this difficult human existence. All of us are in this human existence now, and there's a lot of struggles and a lot of problems and a lot of misery as part of this human existence. 
And it's these teachings and this path to enlightenment that's going to help you work all of that out. So as we learn about Gautama Buddha's life, you will understand his life and what he experienced and what motivated him to actually attain enlightenment. So I would like to invite you to listen, to understand, to ask questions. As you have questions, whether you're in Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, you can type those into the comment section and our moderator, Max, will ensure they get asked during the class. And if you're in Zoom, you can raise your hand electronically and ask your question or any follow-up questions directly if you would like. So let's go ahead and get started talking about Gautama Buddha's life story. When this person was born, he was born into a royal family and he was given the name Siddhartha Gautama. At that time of his birth, he wasn't yet a Buddha because what a Buddha is, is someone who's fully perfectly enlightened. They have transcended the human condition and they have now moved their mind to the point where it's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently. They no longer experience discontentedness. So when he was born, they didn't know that he was going to become a Buddha. He didn't know he was going to become a Buddha. So he was not yet a fully perfectly enlightened Buddha. The criteria that make a Buddha a Buddha is they need to be self-awakened. They need to discover these teachings on their own without the guidance or help of any other teachers. That's the first criteria. They need to awaken their mind to enlightenment by themselves. And they then need to share the teachings during their lifetime with countless people to help more and more and more people to attain enlightenment during their lifetime. And they need to leave the teachings in a condition after their death that those teachings and the people that they're leaving behind, which are enlightened, can carry their teachings forward for countless more people to attain enlightenment. There's other criteria that make a Buddha a Buddha, but these are the three primary ones. Self-awakened without the help of any teachers, their teachings that they discover through their self-awakening, they guide countless people during their lifetime to awaken through those same teachings, and after their death, their teachings continue with the people that they've left behind and help to awaken countless other people. So they've left behind people that were deeply enlightened that can continue their teachings into the future and help more and more people awaken. So at his birth, he was not yet a Buddha. He was just like any other baby, except for he was born into a royal family. And he was given the name Siddhartha Gautama. And Gautama was his family name. His father was a king, and his mother, of course, was the queen. As was customary during this time frame, when the woman was getting close to delivery, she would make her way back to her parents' home in order to give birth. So she didn't give birth in the actual palace itself. There was a caravan organized, and she makes her way back towards her family's homeland in order to give birth to this new baby that was coming along. Well, in her journey, she starts feeling labor pains and she stops the caravan and she stops the caravan and she gets out and she goes over and she reaches up and grabs a hold of a branch of a tree and this baby starts to be born. 
but the baby can't be born out of her vagina and it actually comes out of the side of her body. So essentially what we might call a C-section in today's modern medical discipline, those C-sections didn't exist during her lifetime over 2,500 years ago, but this baby was born out of her stomach. So I don't know if somebody cut or it just broke through or what happened, but this baby was born out of the side of the stomach. And seven days later, his mom actually dies. Because if you can imagine that type of situation occurring over 2,500 years ago, there wasn't the medical technology available to preserve her life. So she ends up dying. And as customary during that time frame, if the mother dies, then her closest siblings would kind of adopt the child. So the Buddha's aunt, who was his mom's oldest sister, is the one who ends up becoming his stepmom, or for all intents and purposes, his mom. Now, there is a story that at the time of his birth, when she reached up and grabbed the tree and he's born out of the side, there's a story that says that he immediately stood up and walked seven steps and lotus flowers popped up under his feet and he proclaimed in his own voice that this is my last life. I will no longer ever be reborn again. I don't feel that this part of the story is actually accurate, although it's a common part of the story that is often told. And the reason why I don't feel this part of the story is accurate is because the next part of the story that I'm about to tell you wouldn't have transpired if that occurred. If a baby comes out of its mother and it can instantly walk, it can instantly talk, and lotus flowers pop up under his feet, there's no reason to do this next thing. The next thing that happens is his father summons 108 advisors to come and explain to him what his son is going to become in his life. This was kind of a common practice. His firstborn son, who's the prince, the king was interested to know what's going to happen with my son. So 107 of those advisors told his dad that your son is going to be a great monarch. He's going to become the king and he's going to rule over your land, be a great leader and expand your kingdom. So, of course, his father really enjoyed hearing that and thought, wow, that's my boy. Well, there is one advisor who came in and said, I'm sorry, sir, but your son is not going to be a monarch and a leader in the way that you think he's going to be a leader. He's actually going to be a spiritual leader and helping people in the world. Well, his father, the king, didn't like that very much. He wanted his firstborn son to be the king. So he sequestered his son in the palace, ensuring that he kind of wooed him into the ways of becoming a monarch. So if that story of the miracles that happened at his birth was true, his father would have no reason to summon advisors because you would know what your son's going to become had that part of the story been true and real. But nonetheless, this story continues where his father sequesters him into the palace. He gives him all great food, great fabrics, beautiful women to bathe him and take care of him. He just literally kind of embellishes him with all of these royal riches, helping him to maybe a sense get attached to this royal life, 
where he would not be interested in any other pursuits other than being a king because he wouldn't be able to fulfill these desires of all this lap of luxury that he had in any other way. Well, at the age of 29, Siddhartha Gautama was about to ascend to the throne. During this lifetime, you didn't wait until your father died to become the king. You became the king once you were actually 30 years old. So his father was essentially going to retire. So Siddhartha Gautama was about to become the king. So at age 29, he summons his attendants to go outside and take him through the kingdom and kind of observe what's going on in the kingdom because he had never experienced life outside the palace before. And yet here he was about to become the king and be the ruler over all of these people. And in this journey outside the palace, he has these observations. We call them the four observations. He observes a sick person, an aging person, a dead person, and then he observes a, an aesthetic or a spiritual seeker. And when he made these observations, he didn't quite understand what was happening. When he saw the sick person, he saw the misery and despair that they were in, and all the people around them were in despair or discontent. The mind was sad or angry or annoyed or frustrated. The person who was aging, the same thing, old and decrepit, having kind of a miserable part of their life as their body was breaking down and their mind was very much discontent, as were the people around this person. And then, of course, when he saw the dead corpse and he saw that people actually die, which he didn't understand previous to that. He didn't understand that people actually died at some point. And he saw the misery and the discontentedness, the sadness and despair associated with the death of an individual. And then he saw this aesthetic or this spiritual seeker who was just meditating and seemed to be somewhat peaceful in what they were doing. And he asked his attendant for each one of these four observations. What is that? What is that? What is that? And what is that? And his attendant explained to him, you know, this is a sick person. This is an aging person. This is someone who's died. This is an aesthetic and a spiritual seeker, someone who's trying to understand life better. And as Siddhartha Gautama observed these four observations, what he observed from palace life to life in the kingdom was very, very different because he was sheltered from this misery of life. He was given all this lap of luxury in the palace. So he wasn't used to all this misery that what he experienced and was exposed to outside the palace. By this time, he had already married and had a young son. But when he observed this misery in the kingdom, he decided that he was not interested in becoming the king because he felt like he would essentially be ruling over misery and despair. What he was more interested in doing is figuring out why these three things, sickness, aging, and death, were so difficult for people and why they occurred and why people's minds were so discontent during these three periods of time. So he decided to do that fourth thing, which is go become a spiritual seeker and try to understand life better as a way of helping humanity.
So as he goes back to the palace, he knows that his mind is pulling towards his wife and pulling towards his son in this lap of luxury in the royal kingdom. And what he decides to do is he decides to leave in the middle of the night. He just essentially kisses his wife and his child. He doesn't even pick them up. As they were sleeping, he just gives them a little kiss and he departs the palace and leaves with his favorite horse and his attendant, his trusted confidant and comrade. Because at this point, he understands his mind is pulling towards his son and his wife, but he doesn't understand why. And he felt like if he talked to them and picked up his son, that they would have such a hold on him that he wouldn't actually leave the palace. So he decides to leave in the middle of the night. But he still doesn't understand craving, desire, and attachment. So he takes with him his horse and his attendant. And as he leaves and goes out of the palace, he eventually comes to a place where he decides to sit down and actually cut off his hair. During this part of history, there wasn't any photographs, there wasn't any television, there wasn't any social media to share with everybody who is the king, who is the prince, who's the royal family. So the way that people understood who the royal family is, is by your hair. If you had long, beautiful, flowing hair, they knew that you were of the noble class and that you were of the royal family because it's only the royal family that had the riches to be able to sit around and just essentially not have to labor in fields, not have to do hard laborious work. And they would have many people to help them take care of their hair and make this long flowing hair. So when the prince or the king or the princesses or the queens would go out into the land and people would see this long caravan of people and guards along with this long flowing hair they knew that this was part of the royal family and that they should honor and respect these people well siddhartha Gautama, when he leaves the palace he cuts off his hair he brings it down to very short hair and this is essentially his way of saying i'm never going back i'm not going to become a king because from that day forward it would have taken him many, many, many years to ever grow back that hair in the way that he had cultivated it for 29 years. And he would never be able to really grow his hair back in a way that people would actually acknowledge and respect him as the king. So by him cutting off his hair, it's a way of saying, I'm never going back. But there's also kind of a deeper understanding there that he's not attached to his own personal image and his self-identity. This is part of what he ultimately realizes as non-self, that he's not concerned about his appearance and his look, that he cuts off his hair as a way of becoming humble and disassociating with this self-identity that causes so much trouble in the unenlightened mind. At this same time, not only does he cut off his hair, but he says goodbye to his attendant and he gives him his horse or lets his horse go and he kind of roams off on his own. Well, he learns about these different groups of people who are essentially claiming that they've attained enlightenment. And there's various gurus or various teachers who are all teaching different teachings, but who are all 
independently claiming that they had attained enlightenment. And they had various collections of students around them that were under training with that particular guru or master. So Gautama Buddha, who's not yet Gautama Buddha, he's still Siddhartha Gautama, he ends up taking up training with two different teachers. And what these teachers were sharing with him are their teachings of how to reach this enlightened mental state that people were claiming that they understood and claiming that they knew. And at this point, Siddhartha Gautama didn't know what enlightenment was, so he was kind of going on trust that these people knew what they were talking about and he underwent training for them. Well, in this two-year period of time, they taught him a little bit about meditation and they taught him all these things that actually disparage the body. They were hanging themselves upside down from trees. They were doing harmful things to the physical body. What the thought was at this time was that if you did horrible things to the body, that you would transcend the physical pain of the body and the mind would become enlightened. So not only were people hanging themselves upside down from trees and driving nails into their skin and their flesh, but they were also starving themselves. They weren't really eating. They were barely eating, just barely enough food to keep themselves alive. And they thought if they damaged the body or they kind of neglected the body enough that eventually the mind would relent and it would give in to this physical pain and it would transcend this physical pain in order to attain this enlightened mental state. Well, after two years of studying with these teachers, Siddhartha Gautama realized that his mind wasn't in any better condition than it was when he first left the palace. So over this two-year period of time, it was like he had almost wasted his time realizing that these disparaging techniques to do harm to the body and experience physical pain weren't actually helpful at all in terms of training his mind. So he decides to go off on his own and he goes into the forest and tries to seek his own enlightenment, not realizing whether he would or whether he could actually attain it. But he knew that what he was currently doing wasn't working. So he went out into the forest after two years and he starts to just be in the forest secluded by himself. But he didn't really know anything else other than what the previous teachers had taught him. So he was still starving himself. He was working with meditation and these other things, but he was still starving himself. And he was on the brink of death. And you oftentimes will see artwork and statues that depict this, where he's in meditation and his ribs are sunken in, his abdomen is sunken in, his face is really sunken and bony, and he's basically on the brink of death. And there's a girl with her mom who comes and offers him some rice and some food. And he reluctantly decides to accept this offering of food. In that moment, he had the realization that if he allowed the physical body to die, that he was going to be unable to train the actual mind. He was unable to train this mind if his physical body died because there would no longer be this existence to actually train the mind. So he reluctantly accepts this rice and starts to eat and nourish the body. And this is a huge turning point in his progress to enlightenment because up to that point, all that he understood was disparaging the body. 
but he realized that the physical body and the mind were two separate things and that he couldn't allow harm to be done to the body, that he needed to take care of it. So he starts eating. And as he eats and he starts regaining his power and his strength, he starts to focus in on the mind and what the mind actually needs in order to attain this enlightened mental state rather than disparaging the body. So this was a key pivotal turning point in realization in his path to enlightenment. Well, he ends up staying in the forest for about four years total. So his total journey is about six years of time where he then eventually comes out of the forest and he sits down at a tree and decides to meditate and meditate and meditate some more. And he eventually realizes that what he discovered in the forest in terms of training his mind over all those years have come to full fruition in this gradual training, this gradual progress over the six-year journey, and that he has indeed attained enlightenment gradually over time. And when he realizes that he had discovered the teachings and he had self-realized these teachings, at that point he realized he is a Buddha. And he's the one who has the teachings that are going to benefit all of humanity. But the teachings that he had to share were vastly different than anyone else that was currently teaching at that time. All the other people that had claimed that they were, had attained enlightenment, they were teaching all these miscellaneous teachings that were disparaging the body, while his teachings were all about training the mind. So for seven weeks, he contemplates at this tree and he tries to determine whether he's actually going to share these teachings and help humanity or was he just going to go back to the palace and humbly on his way and kind of restart his life as a monarch potentially. Well, after seven weeks of contemplating, he finally decides that he is going to share these teachings with humanity and he returns back to the area where his previous classmates and teachers were gathered and teaching and sharing their teachings. And when they saw him walking towards them, remember they were disparaging the body. They weren't eating. They were starving themselves. And here they see this individual calmly, peacefully, humbly walking down the street and he's nourished. He's got meat on his bones and they start laughing at him. They start mocking him. They think that he's actually given up because to them, in order to attain enlightenment, you needed to be bony. You needed to be starving yourself. You need to be disparaging the body. So they're laughing at him and they're mocking him. And they think that, you know, he's given up and he's gone back to be a member of the royal family. And they start to try to make him feel bad and guilty for his decisions. But of course, as the fully perfectly enlightened Buddha, he knew what the teachings are. He had already transcended sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, loneliness, boredom, shyness. All of these discontent feelings are out of his mind. So he knows that he knows the truth and he has the wisdom that people can learn to attain enlightenment if they choose. So the mocking words and the way that they approached him didn't affect his mind whatsoever. So as they were laughing and mocking and joking him, he just quietly sits down and he touches the earth with his hand. 
and then animals from the animal kingdom come to him. So deer and antelopes and buffaloes and horses and elephants and insects and birds, all these animals come to where he is. And these five aesthetics see this, that he performed this miracle. And they essentially stopped mocking him immediately, sat down and listened to him and said, whoa, what does this guy have to teach us? And at that moment, he then delivers his very first discourse, which is the four noble truths. And in these four simple statements, he explains the problem, which is the discontent mind. He explains the cause of the problem, which is craving, desire, attachment. The mind is craving for permanence while everything is impermanent. He then discusses to eliminate the discontent mind, you need to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. And then he gives the complete solution, which is, he says, you need to practice the eightfold path in order to completely attain enlightenment by learning and practicing this path. So in four simple statements, he essentially delivers the problem, the cause of the problem, the solution to the problem, and the complete solution, which is the Eightfold Path. And the people that he was speaking to and he delivered this discourse to were essentially dumbfounded. They were amazed by the level of wisdom and the depth of his knowledge that he delivered in those four simple statements because they were so busy disparaging the body and starving themselves to the brink of death that they didn't understand that they weren't actually training the mind. They were just inflicting pain and misery on the physical body. So the Buddha at that point, he's the Buddha, he essentially helped them to see that they were completely on the wrong track. They were headed in the wrong direction. And it was only when they understood these four noble truths in this entire Eightfold Path that they would actually make any progress on this path to enlightenment. So he ends up spending the remaining time of his life sharing these teachings. From the age of 29 to 35 are the six years that he journeyed on this path to enlightenment. At the age of 35, he attains enlightenment and starts teaching these first five aesthetics. And then more and more and more people start joining to learn with him as their teacher. Because the thing about learning Gautama Buddha's teachings is if you're learning the truth, you can see the truth for yourself as the condition of your mind is improving. You can independently verify the teachings and the condition of the mind in your life is gradually improving. So the people who were studying with him and learning with him, they could see the condition of the mind was improving. But there were still these various camps of people who claimed that they had attained enlightenment and the Buddha was a fake, so to speak, and they were the ones who had really discovered enlightenment. So oftentimes, these teachers would get together. There would be the Buddha, who everyone at his lifetime didn't know he was the Buddha. It was only people who were studying with him that potentially knew that. And these other teachers would come together and they would talk and they would debate the teachings that lead to enlightenment. The Buddha would share his teachings and this other teacher would share their perspective of what it takes to get to enlightenment. Their perspective students, 
the Buddhist students and this other teacher students would all be there listening to the debate. Well, as they would talk back and forth, oftentimes the other teacher would get angry, would get frustrated, would start to insult the Buddha or talk negatively to the Buddha, and then potentially even get up and leave in anger and walk away due to their ego. And at that time, everybody who was present knew that that teacher hadn't attained enlightenment because their mind was shaken up. So oftentimes the students of that teacher who left would end up then becoming students of the Buddha. Or the Buddha would debate so well that as he talked with the other teacher, the other teacher would eventually realize that the Buddha's teachings are what truly leads to enlightenment. And that teacher with his students would actually join the Buddha and become members of his community, now learning and training under the guidance of the actual Buddha. So the Buddha spends 45 years of his life sharing these teachings. His family, his wife and his son, his mom, who was his stepmom, his cousins, other people from the royal family end up stepping down out of the royal family and join the Buddha in order to get training. Oftentimes people think that the Buddha left his family and turned his back on them and never looked back. This isn't true. He actually came back into the kingdom and his son joined him, his wife joined him, his mom joined him, his brothers and cousins joined him to the point that his father, the king, actually came and pleaded with the Buddha to stop allowing the members of the royal family to ordain and become one of his students or one of his disciples. And he realized that his dad was attached and his dad was in this despair and misery because all of these members of the royal family had left in order to join him to learn and practice these teachings. So he implemented a rule that is in place until today that nobody could ordain with him unless they had their parents' approval and or their wife and their children's approval. So even today here in Thailand, if somebody's going to go ordain to become an ordained practitioner, your wife or your husband or your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your children, your parents, all these people need to be present in order to be the first ones to cut your hair to show a sign of support that you are actually able to ordain because the Buddha was interested in solving the discontent mind and solving the problems of the world, not creating problems of the world. So he recognized that if everybody just left the household to join him on this pursuit to enlightenment, that the households would be empty and he would basically kind of end up knocking down society that there wouldn't be the people in the community that are needed in order to support and sustain the community. So he instituted this rule that your family needed to support you in order to come and be a student and a disciple of his. They needed to agree and approve that that was okay for you to go do and they would be okay without you. Once the Buddha dies, there's countless people who are enlightened and there's other people who are at various stages of enlightenment. Not everybody was enlightened. Not everybody even agreed that he was the Buddha. Because during his lifetime, there were people called Brahmin who are kind of like the 
upper class of people who are decided that in this caste, this 15% of society, they are the ones who did all the spiritual teaching and a lot of the villagers and farmers would go to them in order to receive blessings or they would pay these Brahmin money and the Brahmin would go off and pray to the various gods. And the thought and the belief at that time was if you gave these Brahmin money, they could communicate to all these gods for you, but you couldn't actually communicate to them yourself because you were just kind of a farmer and you didn't have the ability to communicate with these various gods. Well, this bred corruption because these 15% of Brahmin in this caste system, they could ask for more and more money all the time from these farmers. And based on the belief at the time, the farmers felt like they couldn't communicate with God. So they had no other choice but to pay these Brahmin the money that they were asking for in order to get something good to happen in their life. Well, when the Buddha came in and started teaching, there was kind of this contention between the Buddha and the Brahmin because the Buddha was saying, you don't need these Brahmin. You don't need to go pay people to pray on your behalf to these various gods. What you need to do is you need to learn the teachings and train the mind. You also need to learn about the natural law of gamma, of cause and effect or action and result. Essentially, what the Buddha was doing was putting the power into the hands of the average person and saying, you have the ability to liberate the mind, attain this peaceful, calm, serene and content mind with joy, and you don't need these other people. You can actually do this yourself. So this created conflict, and there were plenty of people in the Buddha's territory that actually disagreed with him and felt that his teachings were misleading and that he wasn't an actual Buddha and that he hadn't discovered how to attain enlightenment. So it was only the people that were studying with him and that could actually see the improvement to the condition of their mind that knew that he was in fact a Buddha. And when he died, all of these enlightened beings and people in all the various stages of enlightenment knew that he was the Buddha because they had experienced a profound improvement in the condition of the mind. But during his lifetime, nothing was actually written down. It was all oral teachings. So it wasn't until he actually died that they assembled together and actually started talking about writing down the teachings and assembling them in some kind of format that could now be handed down from person to person to person after his death. So that's what they ended up doing. And today we call that collection of teachings the Pali Canon or the Pali Text. We've thought for a long time that the Buddha actually taught in Pali, but it turns out that we've discovered some other teachings that were in languages prior to Pali. So the Pali Canon itself dates back to about 800 to 1200 years ago. So there was this long period of time from the Buddha's death for about 1200 to 1300 years where there was all these various texts that were written down and his teachings were handed down orally that we don't have access to that information. And there were certain things that were lost during that time. But the current teachings that we have in the Pali Canon date back to about 800 to 1200 years ago. And we consider that to be the largest, most complete collection of the Buddhist teachings. But we know it doesn't have everything 
because of this long period of time where we've got this gap in history where there was oral dissemination of the teachings and whatever was being written has pretty much been lost. So it's only in today's time that we look back to this Pali Canon as the source of his teaching. And then there are certain people in the community who have attained enlightenment, who understand those missing parts that aren't necessarily written down, but through practicing the teachings, you can actually see that these parts actually work. So that's why it's important to have a teacher who you feel that is attained enlightenment or at least further on the path than you are so that you can get access to these teachings in the Pali Canon and access to their wisdom based on their experience of progressing on this path. And today we've got three main schools of traditions of Buddhist teachings. We have the Theravada tradition, the Mahayana tradition, and the Vajrayana tradition. And then there's various offshoots of these. The Theravada tradition means teachings of the elders. Our thought is, is that we're interested in maintaining the teachings as close to what the Buddha actually taught as humanly possible. We're interested in learning, understanding, and practicing what it was that the actual Buddha was teaching that led to enlightenment during his lifetime because he was the fully perfectly enlightened Buddha. And then you get other traditions after that that start changing and modifying the teachings and essentially getting farther and farther away from what the Buddha actually taught. One of the primary things that the Buddha taught during his lifetime is that worship and ceremonies, rites and rituals don't lead to enlightenment because that's what he saw happening with the Brahmin and this corruption that was happening. But what ends up happening as we go through time and these various traditions start to morph and modify is you start seeing deities and worship and rites and rituals start being injected into the practices that are happening in modern times. So what you'll observe in all of these various traditions is there's a certain amount of rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship that happen inside of these traditions. But this isn't part of what the Buddha actually taught originally. He was encouraging people not to do those things because they don't actually lead to enlightenment. He was instead teaching people to focus on learning and practicing these teachings to train the mind to get to enlightenment. And then once he actually attained enlightenment, he realized that he had actually solved this problem of sickness, aging, and death because he realized that people were discontent during this time of sickness, aging, and death due to the impermanent nature of the physical body. Because the mind craves for health and well-being and expects the body to permanently be healthy, when the body becomes sick due to impermanence in the human condition, then the mind becomes discontent. Because the mind craves youthfulness and the youthful appearance, and the mind craves this permanent youthful appearance, when the body gets old, then the mind becomes discontent because the mind is craving this youthful appearance. And then when there's death, the mind becomes discontent because people crave for this person to be permanent and wanting the people to be permanent. So he discovered the path to enlightenment, but he ultimately 
discovers why the mind becomes discontent during sickness, aging, and death. And it's because people's mind is not awakened to the universal truth of impermanence. The human mind in the unenlightened state doesn't understand constant change and things are temporary and constantly changing. The mind expects and craves permanent health. It expects and craves permanent youthfulness. It expects and craves to never die, thinking that it shouldn't have to die. And at the same time, during his path to enlightenment, he discovers this cycle of rebirth, realizing that the reason why we experience sickness, aging, and death is because of birth. The reason why we experience these three things in the human condition is because we were born. The only reason why we die is because we were born and we've been constantly reborn in this cycle of rebirth over and over and over and over again. And we're still alive in this form right now today, but we've been many other beings in the past. And it's only when you attain enlightenment that you eliminate this cycle of rebirth because you've transcended the human condition. You've trained the mind in such a way that it is no longer attached and craving, desiring for this existence. And therefore you attain this peaceful, calm, serene and content mind with joy where you're never born again. So you essentially solve sickness, aging and death by attaining enlightenment eliminating this constant cycle of rebirth, because if you're not born, then you won't experience sickness, aging, and death. So the motivation of the Buddha to actually go on this journey to enlightenment, he actually discovers why the mind is discontent during these three parts of life, and he discovers how to eliminate these situations where you will find yourself sick, aging and experiencing death of yourself and loved ones that by you gradually training the mind seeing the truth for yourself that the condition of the mind is gradually improving to this peaceful calm serene and content mind with joy you will know that you're learning the truth and you may even experience observation of your past lives and you will no longer be reborn back into the world in any form to experience sickness, aging, and death again. So not only will you solve the discontent mind in this lifetime, but you will no longer experience any future lives where you will experience this difficult human existence, this misery of sickness, aging, and death. So I'd like to pause there and see what questions you guys have on Gautama Buddha's life story, his birth, his early life, his journey to enlightenment, any of his teachings or what we can extrapolate from the story or this difficult human existence of sickness, aging and death in the cycle of rebirth. Thank you, David. I'd like to kick this off by reading out a comment from Uma. She says, Buddha was the first to teach people to think rationally or scientifically during those days when people were blindly following superstitious beliefs based on religion. I'm not so sure about the science part, but I definitely agree that he helped people understand things based on truth and wisdom versus belief. 
And this is why when I have new students come to learn with me, one of the first things I make very, very clear and in the first part of the book that I wrote, I always make sure people understand that nothing Gautama Buddha taught is based on belief. It's all based on learning, practicing the teachings, seeing the truth for yourself through your own independent investigation of the teachings and practice of those teachings to observe that, yes, when I meditate, the condition of the mind improves. Yes, this impermanence, discontentedness, and non-self makes complete sense to me when I look at the world. Yes, these Four Noble Truths makes complete sense to me based on past experiences that I've had in this Eightfold Path. When I learn it and practice it, the condition of the mind is gradually improving. So through independent verification of these teachings with guidance from a teacher, you're guided to independently confirm and verify the truth then that becomes wisdom and that wisdom then allows the mind to function in the world very differently than it did before because before enlightenment when we're in the unenlightened state we think that everyone else is causing this anger this frustration this irritation all these discontent feelings we think it's everyone else's fault but when we start learning these Four Noble Truths and we start practicing the Eightfold Path, we start learning about the natural law of Gamma, we start realizing that we have complete ability, complete control to make decisions in our life and improve the condition of our mind and the condition of our life. And that's where the Buddha's teachings essentially returns the power back to the people. Instead of relying on this upper class of caste system of people who you have to pay to get some beneficial result, the Buddha is saying you can actually attain this mental state yourself, but you need guidance and you need these teachings in order to do it. But as you do it, you will gradually see the improvements to the mind yourself. So Manal says, Teacher David, a question from my husband. Why do you think the Buddha did not document his teachings while he was alive? I feel that the language that he was speaking in didn't probably have a written language at that time. It wasn't a written language. It was an oral language. The people who were learning, the farmers, the shopkeepers, all those people, for all intensive purposes were illiterate. But they weren't illiterate because they were stupid or foolish or ignorant. They were illiterate because their language didn't actually have a written script associated with it. It was just an oral language and only an oral language. Our language of English, we have the oral aspect of English, but then we have the written aspect as well. And it's very different sometimes based on our oral communication versus the written language. And we've been educated through educational systems to have a certain discipline of writing things down, and being able to take in content, and we are literate. We are able to read and absorb information through a written text, where during the Buddha's lifetime, the language that he used, it was all oral. The people were smart. The people were able to understand and practice the teachings, but they just didn't have the capability of writing things down in a codified, systematized way where there was an educational system in place to educate people on this particular language in a written format. It wasn't until after he died, much after he died, that they actually ended up having the technology and the 
script to actually be able to write things down and then the educational systems in place to educate people on how to actually read what it is that they wrote down. So everything was done orally during his lifetime. Okay, now a question from Javier. He says, science is trying to eliminate sickness, aging and death. Is it never going to achieve that or that's not the way? It'll never be eliminated in terms of as long as there's humans, there's always going to be sickness, aging and death. With the human condition, you can't eliminate sickness, aging, and death. There can't be permanent health. There can't be permanent youthfulness. There can't be permanent life where you live forever in one particular body. It's not possible. So there's always going to be this impermanent nature of the human existence. It's just a matter of how the mind relates to it. If your mind craves health and you always expect that you're going to be healthy, then yeah, when you get sick, the mind's going to be discontent. Or if you crave youthfulness, when you see the wrinkles come in and you see the you know, fat come on and you see these changes in the body, yeah, your mind's going to be discontent. And when you get close to death or when other people die around you, the mind's going to be discontent, but that's because the mind's not trained. But as long as there's a human condition, there's always going to be the impermanent nature of that human condition where they're always going to experience sickness, aging, and death. Just like every other being, not just human beings, but animals as well. Animals experience sickness, aging, and death as well. Because this human body, these structures are not permanent. There's no way to achieve permanent health, permanent youthfulness, and permanent life. It goes against the universal truth that we know to be 100% true. So science can try all they want, but they're never going to succeed. It's an interesting one. I've come across this as well. So just a follow up for me. Can you imagine if there was a way to extend life so far that say we ended up living beyond a thousand years and we might pursue that as though that can only possibly be a good thing. But can you imagine leaving the house thinking that you're actually going to live forever unless you don't get hit by a car or something like this? You would be clinging on to your life so hard that I think that you'd just create an immeasurable amount of stress in thinking that one wrong move and, and your life's over. Because if you don't die through aging, you might die through some kind of accident. So in addition to what you were saying there, David, you know, yes, the cause of death really is birth. Yes, that's the only reason anything ever dies is because it's born. But if we can eliminate all these other sub-causes like certain diseases, certain kinds of accident. What's left is something that we're just clinging onto so hard that I think it can just only really make our lives more stressful in my opinion. Yeah, the problem here isn't that there's sickness, aging and death, right? That's not the problem. That's a result of the problem. The problem is the discontent mind. And because of that craving, desire, attachment that's causing the discontent mind, there's the cycle of rebirth. That's the problem. Because of this cycle of rebirth, because of the discontent mind, there continues to be rebirth. So that's the problem is that as long as there's birth, there's going to be sickness, aging, and death. So the Buddha focused on solving the core problem which is this discontent mind, the craving, desire, attachment, because by solving that, 
going to the root of the problem, you attain enlightenment and you eliminate this cycle of rebirth because if you're not ever born, then you're never gonna experience sickness, aging, and death. So this is where science is looking at sickness, aging, and death. They're not understanding the universal truth of impermanence and they're not going to be able to produce permanent health, youth, and life. The problem is that their mind is craving permanent health, permanent youth, permanent life. And because of that, the mind's going to be discontent. They're trying to solve a problem that is unsolvable. What the Buddha did is he actually solved the true problem, which is the discontent mind that it's craving and trying to hold on to these things. Yeah, so on that note, I had a question. So the Buddha says, uh, I'm going to read a quote from the Buddha. He says, now this, monks, is the noble truth of dukkha. Birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, death is dukkha. But we know that the cause of dukkha or discontentedness is craving. So surely, yes, birth is going to be discontentedness, but aging and death don't necessarily have to cause us to be discontent because it's only if we're clinging to youthfulness and if we're clinging to life that they will cause us to be discontent. So I'm interested to know your thoughts on what the Buddha meant by this. That's what he's basically saying is that, by the way, I don't necessarily agree with those translations that you're using there, but what he discovered is that when someone experiences sickness, aging, and death, they're causing their mind to be discontent because of the craving, desire, attachment for the opposite. The mind isn't satisfied with what is. The only reason why these three things cause such misery in the human existence is because we allow it to cause misery. We're causing the discontent mind when we're sick because we're craving health and we're craving to go outside and play and we're craving to go do all of the normal activities that we normally do. So you lay in bed feeling miserable because your mind is craving to be healthy and outside doing your normal things instead of recognizing this body's impermanent. I cannot experience permanent health, so let me just lay here and be sick and let me do whatever I need to do, make good, wholesome decisions in order to regain my health. So while your health is impermanent, you have to realize at the time of sickness that that is impermanent as well and that you can get out of sickness by applying good decisions to get back to health. And what you have to realize is when you're aging and you see all this aging coming in, rather than crave youthfulness, which is going to cause the mind to be discontent, oftentimes people go to elaborate decisions in order to try to inject substances or go through surgeries and operations, a huge amount of cost and risk to their physical health in order to try to maintain some semblance of youth. And that real problem is not the aging. You can't stop the aging. What you've got to do is you've got to train the mind to recognize the impermanent nature of the physical body and that you are going to get old and there's changes with the physical body and that's okay, right? And then we have to get comfortable with death, our own death, not fearing that death, and also get comfortable with the people dying around us and recognize the impermanent nature of that. And recognizing that we are going to experience death, the goal needs to be to learn and practice the teachings to attain enlightenment 
so that once you do die, you fully eliminated craving, desire, attachment, so you'll no longer be reborn. Because if you get to death and there's still craving, desire, attachment, you're going to be reborn and you're going to have to experience all of this misery all over again. So while these three conditions, these three things motivated Gautama Buddha on this journey to enlightenment, you can also use these same three things to motivate your journey to enlightenment. So when you're sick, yeah, instead of just sitting there feeling miserable, recognize the impermanent nature of that, still treat people polite, kind, and friendly using the whole Eightfold Path, but use it as motivation to say, you know what, I don't ever interested to feel sick again. I need to get out of this human body because it's not fun being sick. And as you get old and you feel the aches and pains in your joints and your hips and your knees and you can't move about and you can't do the things that you used to do, use that as motivation that, man, I don't ever want to experience this again. This back pain is horrible. These joint pains are horrible. When you're getting close to death and you see people around you dying, if it makes you sad right now because you're not enlightened, use that as motivation to say, you know what, I don't ever want to experience this ever again. Let me dedicate my time, effort, energy, and resources to learning and practicing these teachings and transcend this human condition so that I never have to come back to this ever again. And that's one of the ways that you can motivate your journey to enlightenment through these same three things that the Buddha did. But you don't have to go off and be ordained the way the Buddha did. You can actually attain enlightenment as a household practitioner, but some people will choose to become ordained, and that's one way of actually attaining enlightenment, either as an ordained practitioner or a household practitioner. Thank you, David. Yeah, it makes sense. So we have a question from George. How did the Buddha know there was rebirth after death? Is it because he knew that everything was impermanent, including death? I can only speak from my own experiences. I can't necessarily speak for the Buddha. But what I can share with you is that as your mind awakens more and more and more, you may experience observation of your past lives. And for me, I experienced these observations of past lives before I actually read the Buddhist teachings about the cycle of rebirth. I had all of these experiences and it left me quite confused to tell you the truth. It just was very confusing to have all of these things coming through my mind about all these past lives. But a few months later, when I was investigating the Buddhist teachings and he was explaining in these teachings exactly what I experienced, it confirmed for me the cycle of rebirth. So I can only think that during the Buddhist time in the forest, he must have observed his past lives and discovered the cycle of rebirth as a result of that, because that's the experience that I had. So he observed it for himself because he only ever taught things that he knew through experience. He wouldn't teach something that was a belief because if it was a belief, then it couldn't be independently verified. But if he experienced it, then he knows it's true with 100% certainty and he has that wisdom. And if he experienced it, that means you can experience it. So that's why I can look people straight in the eye. And even though I grew up with other teachings that we only have one life, I know with 100% certainty 
that the cycle of rebirth is 100% truth, but you don't know that. So the more you learn and practice these teachings, you may observe your past lives and you may not. You don't actually have to observe your past lives in order to attain enlightenment because what happened in the past is in the past. It doesn't matter. And what may or may not happen in the future, if you're reborn, it doesn't matter because it's in the future. All that matters is right now you're in the human condition. And in order to transcend this human condition, you need to learn and practice the teachings to train the mind to get to this enlightened mental state. But all the way through that training, the condition of the mind will be gradually improving and you will see that for yourself. So you know you're headed more and more and more towards the truth. Now, if you do observe your past lives, it's just going to be confirmation for you that the cycle of rebirth is actually true and real. So I can only assume that the Buddha must have had the same experiences that I've had and the same experiences that I know other people have had of observing past lives. And I've even spoken with nurses and doctors that work in places like America that have been taught all their life that there's only one life, but through their observations of death and birth in the hospital environment, they will actually confirm for me, even though they're Christian, for example, they know that the cycle of rebirth is true because they observe people as they get nearer to death, reciting and talking about their past lives and things like this. And there's plenty of evidence out there for us to look at. When you look at schizophrenia or multiple personality disorder, these type of things are actually people recalling their residual memories from the past. There's actually children nowadays, four, five, six years old, that can recite and tell you about lies that they lived two, three, four hundred years ago. There's lots of this in the news. There's animals that you can see that function very much like humans and have wisdom very much like humans. The more you investigate the cycle of rebirth, you'll come to understand that it's true, but you don't necessarily need that in order to learn and practice the teachings to attain enlightenment. And someday you may actually experience observation of your past lives. We're going to talk more about the cycle of rebirth when we get into, I think it's chapter 20, that we explore those teachings a bit more in about five weeks from now. We have a question from Manal. Why was there such a high interest at that time to attain spiritual enlightenment? If life was relatively simple with less negative karma compared to today's time, then why the pursuit to attain something different? Were human beings born with more nobler qualities in that time, such that they had a high propensity for spiritual awakening, again, compared to humans being born in today's era? I'm not really sure 100% Manal, but when I look at that period of time, you know, not just during the lifetime of the Buddha, but extending that to 500 years more, right? Where Jesus comes along. So, you know, you've got Hinduism, you've got Buddhism, you've got Christianity, and not too long after that, the Muslim teachings come out. There's this kind of whole period of time where it seems like humanity was deeply interested in truly understanding this life more than what they currently understood. Because prior to that, you know, we were coming out of kind of like the prehistoric times where we were just rubbing two sticks together and not even really communicating, just kind of grunting and moaning and um, not really having any particular system to understand each other and just trying to kind of survive. 
as beings on this planet. But as time goes on in humanity, I think humanity becomes more and more interested in, you know, why are we here? What are we doing here? What is this mind? What is this physical body? You know, there, there's this evolution of interests and in what's really happening in this human condition. And it seems like during that kind of five to eight hundred year time frame, even a little bit before the Buddha and then after him with Jesus and Christianity, there's this period of time where humans were really, really interested in understanding these kind of things. So why was that time frame versus another? I'm not sure. But we know that it happened and we know that we've got these teachings to improve our life today. And that's what's really important. I'm wondering, David, if Gautama Buddha was the first person to attain enlightenment, what did people think it was prior to that time? If there were other people who were also trying to attain this state and who had claimed to attain it, but it hadn't actually been attained, how did they know what it was or that it was even attainable? I can only answer that question by looking at what exists today. In today's society, there's essentially the same thing that existed during the lifetime of the Buddha. During the lifetime of the Buddha, there was all these different camps that said that they had attained enlightenment, all these different traditions. And there was these Brahmin who were performing these rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. And then there's this one singular man who goes off on this personal journey and discovers the teachings to attain enlightenment. And he knows that he has the truth, but there's no ego and arrogance with that. He just humbly starts sharing his teachings. But these other camps disagree with him and these Brahmin disagree with him. So they think that they truly know how to proceed in life. So when you look at today, what we've got is we've got all these different traditions of teachings around the world that claim that they know the answer. They have the truth and they have different varying degrees of saying, well, you just have to believe all this stuff. And then when you get to death, you'll find out that it was true then. Or some people will say, enlightenment means that you're just more aware of all these feelings. You're still going to have anger and frustration, but you're just more aware of it and you don't let it bother you. And some people say that's what enlightenment is. So all these different camps today, all these different traditions, all these different schools have different perspectives of what enlightenment is and what enlightenment isn't. And who's to say what's true and what's false. There's no one person that's the anointed one that people can look to and say, aha, he's got the answers or she's got the answers. That's the true answer. So there's all these camps around the world that say we have the answers of how to attain enlightenment and we know what enlightenment is. But whenever you talk to the vast majority of these people, people will still tell you that there's some degree of anger, frustration, irritation, boredom, loneliness, they will not tell you what I'm sharing with you. And then you will have some camps in the world that say in order to live a better life, you need to worship, you need to praise, you need to do these rites, rituals, and ceremonies. And that's essentially what the Brahmin were doing. And there's even monks nowadays that do rites, rituals, ceremonies, even though they consider themselves Buddhists, and monks, these Buddhist monks are actually performing rites, rituals, and ceremonies. So essentially, the Buddhist monks have become the Brahmin during the lifetime of the Buddha. They've kind of inherited, you know, you pay us money, you give us a donation, and we'll do these rites, rituals, and ceremonies for you. Not all of them, but some of them. But then there's kind of like 
some people who will share with you what I'm sharing with you, which is enlightenment is a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, where you've completely eliminated 100% of all discontent feelings. The mind is permanently in the middle, no longer moving to sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear. It no longer moves to this happiness, excitement, elation. It no longer moves to this boredom or loneliness or shyness, resentment, jealousy, anxiety, stress, all of these types of feelings. And I'm sharing with you, that's what the enlightened mental state is. And it's permanent. It's a permanent mental state that once you train the mind in this direction, it's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. And in order to do that, you need to eliminate craving, anger, ignorance, the self, and the ego, along with cultivating these other wholesome mental states that I explain as part of the whole path. Well, me sharing that and you hearing that, that's what enlightenment is. As far as I'm concerned, as far as what I have experienced, that's what enlightenment is. But when you talk to other people, other people will tell you completely different things than what I'm sharing with you here. And they will even share with you different methods. They will look at what I'm teaching and say, oh, that's not correct. You need to be practicing this. But then you ask them, have you eliminated anger? No, that's impossible. Well, what they're sharing with you as teachings doesn't eliminate anger. So therefore, why would you be interested in that? So at the lifetime of the Buddha, people didn't understand and agree 100% of what enlightenment is and what enlightenment isn't. Just like today, there's not 100% agreement of what enlightenment is and what enlightenment isn't. And the reason why what I'm sharing I know to be true is because what I'm sharing with you is in the Pali Canon, their teachings from the Buddha. I learned those teachings and practice them and I speak through experience of what I've experienced. I share these teachings with others and students are progressing and seeing the improvement to their mind as well. And when I talk to enlightened monks here in Thailand, and I talk to people who have studied with enlightened monks, they confirm that what I'm teaching is the same thing that they're teaching, and they know it to be an enlightenment, what I'm explaining to them. So my perspective and my experiences of what enlightenment is matches with those people here in this community of people that agree, yes, that's what enlightenment is. And those are the teachings that you're sharing that would lead to that mental state. So here within Thailand, there's somewhat of an agreement of what enlightenment is. And that's why we can observe enlightenment in various members of our community. But not everybody agrees with that. So you've got Mahayana tradition or Vajrayana tradition or Zen Buddhism or Jainism and all these other traditions around the world that feel like they know what the truth is. Well, when you know what the truth is and you've fully extinguished these discontent feelings from the mind, you have no desire to run around and force others to learn and practice what it is that you're doing. All you need to do is walk with wisdom and a smile because you know what you're experiencing. You know you're experiencing a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy that's permanent. There's no need for Thailand to go out into the world and try to force or attempt to force people 
to learn this because when you know the truth, you just know the truth and you have wisdom and a smile. So when people come to Thailand and they experience this peaceful place with all these loving and generous, kind and compassionate people, and people start asking questions. Why is Thailand like that? Why are there so many temples everywhere? Why do the Thai people smile so much? Oh, you're interested to know now? Okay, we'll share it with you here. So Thailand and all the people here that are on this path and know this path well, we're more than willing to share it with people, but we're not going to go into the world and try to push it or force it on people because you can't force someone to attain enlightenment. It has to be a personal choice. So what we do here is we learn and practice this path and then we make it available in all the various ways that we would like. For me, because I'm an English speaking teacher and I'm in the Western community, I used online and other methods to kind of roll out a mat and say, anybody who's interested in learning this path, here it is, it's available for you, but it's your choice of whether or not you would like to come learn it. And anybody who chooses to come learn and receive guidance, they will see for themselves the benefit and improvements of the mind as the condition of the mind improves. And if people say, you're wrong, that's not enlightenment, you don't know what you're talking about, okay, thank you for your opinion. But there's no argument from me, there's no hostility, no anger from me that this person disagrees with me, even though they might be angry and hostile to me, I can see they obviously aren't enlightened, otherwise they wouldn't be angered and hostile. So people who understand these teachings during today's lifetime, I feel are the same as what was going on during the Buddha's lifetime, that all those various camps had thought they attained enlightenment, and they might have had some degree of awakening, but they weren't fully perfectly enlightened like the Buddha himself. And the reason why we know about his teachings that have lived for 2,500 years is because they actually work. We don't know about these other teachings of people who were disparaging the body and things like that other than very surface level things because they didn't work, so they didn't stick around. The reason why we know about the Buddha and all of his teachings and why his teachings have spread throughout the whole world is because they actually work. But because of impermanence, not everybody understands the same thing. There's kind of varying degrees of teachings in different places around the world. The reason why I'm here in Thailand is because Thailand is the largest community of practitioners that are practicing the Theravada teachings. In terms of the entire world, Thailand has 70 million people here with 95% of them being Theravada Buddhists. So it's the largest community of people anywhere in the world that is dedicated to learning and practicing and preserving these teachings in the original form that the Buddha actually taught. So for me, when I was seeking out understanding and improving the condition of my mind, I was very interested in being as close to the Thai people as possible because they're the ones, in my view, that have the truth. And then the more you learn and practice that, you can see the truth for yourself. Something else we see quite a lot these days is that this belief that in order to become enlightened, we have to follow the footsteps of the Buddha. We have to leave home, become ordained, 
maybe then pursue a life of teaching and, and sharing. To what extent do we have to follow in his path, David? Can we not attain enlightenment as lay people? Maybe continue on in our daily livelihoods, not necessarily as a teacher. To what extent do we have to follow in these footsteps? Yeah, it's important to understand the difference between the Eightfold Path, which is right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, which is the training of the mind, versus the lifestyle. There's two different lifestyles. There's the ordained lifestyle where you go away, you give up all of everything, your relationships, your possessions, your money, everything, and you enter into this womb where you are now dedicating your life or some portion of your life to learning and practicing the teachings of the Buddha in this womb of the temple, this womb of the ordained life, this womb of the monastery. That's a lifestyle choice. And then there's household practitioners who choose to maintain significant others, children or not, jobs, careers, dwellings, homes, things like this. These are lifestyle choices. In the ordained path, you're relinquishing all these worldly possessions. Therefore, you have an enormous amount of time to dive into learning and practicing the teachings. In the household lifestyle, you still need to work, you still have relationships, you still have to maintain your home and all these other things. So your time is limited that you can actually devote to learning and practicing the teachings. But these lifestyle choices have nothing to do with whether you actually attain enlightenment or not. So notice on this path to enlightenment, there's no such thing as right lifestyle choice, right? The lifestyle that you choose, whether you're ordained or household, is essentially going to determine how much time do you have to devote to learning and practicing the teachings. As an ordained practitioner, you're going to have an enormous amount of time to devote to learning and practicing the teachings. But there's a certain discipline, a very strict discipline that comes with that. And there are certain requirements and obligations that you need to fulfill. In the household life, there's less time, but you have more freedom. So in the ordained path, there's more time, but less freedom in terms of what the discipline is. In the household life, there's more openness where you have more freedom, but you don't have as much time. So you have to decide for yourself, how are you going to navigate this? And some people, they will ordain for a year or five years or 10 years, attain enlightenment, and then become a household practitioner. Or you'll have people who will be a household practitioner, attain enlightenment, and then decide to go ordain and pursue their life that way. So even though the Buddha left and became this leader who developed this ordained path, not everybody has to do that. And What's interesting is a lot of us in the West are moving from Christian teachings into Buddhist teachings. And in Christian teachings, we're often taught that in order to kind of reach the pinnacle of these Christian teachings, everybody needs to model their life after Jesus Christ. And they need to become very much like Jesus Christ. So a, a lot of people who are moving from Christianity into Buddhism, they think that in order to attain enlightenment, you have to model your life after the Buddha, meaning leave your family, 
put on a robe, go into the forest, completely secluded, and that's the only way to attain enlightenment. But that's not true. We don't need to model his lifestyle. What we need to model is this eightfold path in eliminating these 10 fetters. This training of the mind that the Buddha gives us, that's what we need to model. And there's nothing on the eightfold path that is based on lifestyle choice. And there's nothing in the 10 fetters, which all need to be eliminated to attain enlightenment. There's nothing in those 10 fetters related to a lifestyle choice. So you're just basically deciding what type of lifestyle would you like to partake in? And during the lifetime of the Buddha, there were ordained practitioners, plenty of them that attained enlightenment. And there were also household practitioners that attained enlightenment during his lifetime. And today, I have met ordained practitioners that have attained enlightenment, and I have met household practitioners that have attained enlightenment. So there's both of those, but it has really trickled down, trickled down, trickled down because of impermanence from the lifetime of Gautama Buddha 2,500 years ago until today, less and less and less and less people are attaining enlightenment. And one of my goals in sharing the teachings and all the different ways that I do is to now increase that so that there's more and more and more people in the world that are attaining enlightenment because I know that this is the way to help people and improve the condition of the world by helping people improve the condition of their mind. Okay, now on last Sunday's talk, David, you mentioned that someone getting a divorce is not impacted in their ability to attain enlightenment. Now, the Buddha did not actually get divorced, but he did go away from his family for many years. So I was wondering if you could maybe elaborate a bit more and further explain divorce and how that relates to these teachings and the path. Okay. So ideally, in the ideal world, we would all be born into a family that the parents are already enlightened or very close to it. And we're being born into a family. And as a child, we grow up and we learn these teachings all the way through from in the womb. Our parents are very calm, very peaceful. We come out of the womb. We're in a household. It's very calm and peaceful. By the age of six, we're starting to learn about the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path. We start practicing this path. And for all intents and purposes, by the time we're seven or eight years old, we're effectively enlightened. And that would be the ideal world. And as we grow, we may choose, even though we're not fully enlightened, perhaps because we're still interested in having a partner, maybe we decide to have a partner when we get 20 or 30 years old and we decide to have sex. And with that new wife or husband or boyfriend, girlfriend, or whoever we decide to be our partner, we choose to have an intimate relationship with them. But we've taken our time to only select this one person because of our upbringing in these teachings and being very close to enlightenment ourselves growing up, we didn't sleep around with three, four, five, 10, 100, 500 people. We just took our time. We were patient without craving anger and ignorance. And we selected a partner that we would like to be with. And we would be with that person for the rest of our life. And there would just be one marriage, right? Or one relationship that was really deep and serious, whether it's a man and a woman or two women or two men. Nonetheless, we would only be intimate with one person our entire life. 
that would be the ideal world. And someday with these teachings, the world may get to that point. However, we are at a point where that isn't the case. We didn't all grow up in a household of enlightened parents. We grew up in a household where they might not have even known the Buddha. I don't know that my mom or dad or grandmother or grandfather even know the name the Buddha or Siddhartha Gautama. I don't even think they know anything about them, right? So we grew up with craving, anger, ignorance, the self, and the ego. We've been involved in many different relationships based on our own impatience, based on our own cravings, based on our own desires, based on our own ego. We've probably had sex with more than one person. We've been involved in more than one serious relationship. And we've made certain decisions in the course of our life to be involved at different levels of depth of seriousness in these various relationships, perhaps even getting married and then subsequently later divorced. And then as we progress, we decide to either completely be single for the rest of our life or perhaps settle with a life partner and be with that person for the rest of our life. This represents impermanence, that it's very unlikely for an unenlightened being at the age of 20 or 30 to make a decision about a partner and make that decision and for it to be permanent for the rest of your life. So if you've been married at age 20 or 30 or 40 and you subsequently got a divorce, that was just because your mind was unenlightened and you weren't making decisions based on good, wholesome decisions, but instead there was still craving, anger, ignorance, the self, and the ego. So you two people coming together, you weren't able to have this permanent true love in order to have a relationship that goes for longevity. And we've had or you've had sex with multiple people. And that's okay because the way that these teachings work to attain enlightenment, it's not looking back over your past with some entity judging you to determine if you've made good decisions or not and granting you enlightenment. What these teachings are about is saying, yeah, you've had a lot of impermanence in your life. You've had a lot of misery. You've had a very difficult human existence. You've experienced a lot of decisions that you didn't understand why they resulted in the way that they have. You've really struggled in your life to make certain decisions and try to figure out this life. And it's been quite challenging for you with all of this discontentedness circling around in the mind. Well, now all of that is in the past and it's all about learning and practicing the teachings right now to train the mind to improve the condition of the mind. So if you made a decision 10 years ago to get married and subsequently decided to get a divorce because it wasn't the right relationship for you, that's okay. That was part of your journey, part of your life. You learned through that, but now learn and practice the teachings, improve the condition of the mind, and as you make decisions now, be sure that you practice that third precept, which is abandoning unchastity, right? Abandoning the unchastity. So don't look to have sex with multiple countless people around you because this is going to cause you and them problems. 
but become wiser and wiser in the training of your mind. And as you choose to have relationships with a significant other, be sure it's somebody that you're loyal to, that you're faithful to, that you're committed to, and that you can have a really good life with, and you can create some stability in your life. But what's happened in the past is in the past. So if you've had a divorce, it's not going to inhibit you from attaining enlightenment because the goal is to practice this entire Eightfold Path and remove the 10 fetters of the mind. Decisions that you made to get married and divorced is essentially like, I decided to get a job and I decided to quit the job, right? But now with more wisdom, if you're single, then choose if you're gonna have a partner in the future, choose very wisely, take your time, don't make your decisions based on craving, anger, ignorance, the self and the ego. Take your time, spend some time, make sure this is a person that you can truly commit to, be loyal to, faithful to, that you can trust, and someone that you can build a good, wholesome life with. If you're with somebody now, and you're finding the relationship somewhat difficult and challenging, dive into these teachings deeper and deeper to help you understand how to improve your life and how to improve the condition of your mind and see if your partner is willing to do the same because the more that both of you guys learn and practice these teachings not only is your individual minds going to become peaceful calm serene and content with joy but your relationship itself is going to become more peaceful calm serene and content with joy because your minds are operating more peacefully and you'll see that by both of you getting closer and closer to enlightenment, you can have permanent love. Because now you guys know what love is. It's a genuine wish for others to be well and be peaceful. It's not this neediness that we desire things from our partner because we want them to make us happy. We're interested in seeing them be well and see them be peaceful. So if you have a partner that is learning and practicing on this path and both of you guys are getting closer and closer to enlightenment, you will have a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful relationship where you never argue, you're never frustrated, you never are sad with each other, you're never bored or lonely, you're never missing each other, you're never putting obligations and burdens and expectations on each other so you can have a permanent love in a relationship that is your very last relationship because both of you guys attaining enlightenment you'll no longer ever be reborn again and this is your last relationship and you've finally figured out how to have a successful relationship with another partner so what you've done in the past in terms of divorce it's in the past now focused on learning and training the mind and moving forward with relationships where you can build lasting, sustainable, calm, peaceful relationships. We have a question from Joy. Is it possible to have a successful relationship if your spouse isn't interested in learning these teachings? We don't have a lot of problems or anything. We've just been married for nearly 25 years and he just isn't interested. Yeah, you can still have a successful relationship your mind will become more and more peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. He might still be having discontentedness. And the more wise you become, the more enlightened you become, there's actually skillful ways to help your partner along the path 
without them even realizing what you're doing. I did this a lot with my son and my wife. So by you learning and practicing these teachings, it's helping you, but it's also helping your partner as well without him truly dedicating time to this path and choosing to actively engage with it. So you can get to a point where your mind doesn't experience any discontentedness whatsoever, but they might still experience discontentedness themselves because they're not actually on the path and enlightened, but they can actually attain enlightenment at death. But why actually wait until death? You can actually attain it during your life and enjoy the rest of your life with this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, but being around you and you skillfully helping your partner without them realizing that that's what you're doing, they can actually progress on this path and potentially attain enlightenment at death and no longer be reborn. But your relationship, just by even one partner, learning and practicing will drastically improve. I was wondering, David, if you could tell us about your motivation for learning and practicing these teachings. My motivation was my mind was highly discontent utterly discontent, sadness, anxiety, depression, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, resentment, jealousy, every single one of those emotions and feelings that I talk about as discontentedness, I was having those to the nth degree. And my goal was to eliminate this discontent mind once I finally got rooted on the path my only goal was to eliminate this discontent mind. And what I observed, the more and more that I was progressing on that path, is just how discontent the entire world is. How utterly miserable most people are in the world. Sure, they experience a little bit of happiness and excitement here and there, but the vast majority of the world is just nothing but angry at each other, arguing with each other, and utter just disrepair and essentially the whole world is self-destructing so what i learned is that the only way to help myself and help the world is to help myself first so i dedicated an enormous amount of time to investigating these teachings exploring these teachings improving the condition of my mind and the more that i did that and i just rediscovered these teachings of the buddha the more I decided that there's this entire world out there that is utterly discontent and utterly in a mode of self-destruction. And the only way for anything to get better is if I choose to fix my mind myself and then offer these teachings into the world. Because what I see is I see murders and suicides, drug abuse, famine, poverty, corrupt politics, greed, and all these kind of things. And sure, I see the positive things in the world as well, but it seems like humanity has gotten to this complete low point in the evolution of humanity. And right now, it's almost like two people can't even be in the same room together and talk without an argument, you know, erupting. You know, I watch some of the news from like America, for example, and man, people just argue and bicker and fight. They they just can't even disagree politely with each other and respectfully with each other. And I watch the news here in Thailand and people are very calm and very peaceful and very respectful to each other. And I go out into this world here in Thailand and I see love and kindness and compassion and generosity and people smiling and being friendly with each other. 
And then I look back to my days in America and I'm like, wow, if America only knew or if the UK or Australia or China or South America or New Zealand, all these other places in the world only knew what the Thai people knew about how to peacefully coexist together, this world could be heaven on earth. So as I improved the condition of my mind and saw that I could completely eliminate all of this discontentedness 100%, my next interest was to share these teachings with others to improve the condition of the world. And the only way that I was going to get to that is if I first figured out how to do it myself. So I used the Buddha's life as a role model that I didn't have to ordain, but I needed to go off and do this by myself. I didn't go off into the forest, but I certainly shut out everything in my life and just totally went with inside myself for many years. And then once I reemerged from that, then I had the real wisdom that I needed in order to start sharing with other people. And now over the last two years, it's just been one decision after another to offer more and more things into the world whether it's a book, audiobook, videos, podcasts, these quizzes, online classes, in-person classes, personal guidance, retreats, these programs, the group learning program, the Polycanon in English program, all of this stuff has just been in the last two years. And there's people that invite me to go to temples and meditation centers and go to colleges and talk and things like this. So I'm dedicating the rest of my life to sharing these teachings into the world with whomever chooses to step forward and receive guidance. And when they do, then they'll see that they can improve the condition of their mind through learning and practicing these teachings. And I know with confidence that they can do that because if I did it, other people can do it as well. Nice, yeah, thank you David. Interesting times, isn't it? Because we've never really had what we want more than we do now. And yet the mind is as discontent as ever. You know, we see discontentness everywhere. And who knows what it was like 100 years ago or 500 years ago. But back then, people were spending more time just trying to scrape a life together, trying to feed themselves and shelter themselves. And now we've got so much stuff and so much of what we want. And not only that, we're, we're actually producing harm in the process. It's the planet. We are um, just messing up our ecosystems and our ability to sustain ourselves in the same way so not only is the mind still discontent but we're actually going to make it harder ourselves in the future so i think the apparent need for these teachings is becoming more and more obvious as the, the pain we experience from the decisions we're making is just screaming at us in the face you know at some point we, i think on an individual level each of us makes a decision to go okay what can i do about the mind and i think that's kind of idea is certainly spreading. So I feel like the time is right for people to learn and practice these teachings. Yeah, I mean, what you were talking about there at the beginning about material wealth and things like that is that, you know, I was taught all my life that you needed to pursue happiness and happiness was material wealth. So little by little over the course of my life, I invested more and more time into creating businesses and creating material wealth and I created a very successful company in America and I grew this company to be making a million dollars a year and I was taking a substantial amount of that and able to afford a very nice lifestyle and what I realized is with that money there wasn't this permanent happiness 
that everybody kind of said that you would get. So I ended up closing down all those businesses and coming to Thailand. And within a short period of time, I started opening up businesses here. And within a very short period of time, the businesses here became very successful. And once again, I had built a company within two years up to about 600,000 US a year here in Thailand. So it took me 10 years to kind of build that in America. But with that wisdom and knowledge, it only took me two years to build it here. But it was a completely different industry. And here in Thailand, that 600,000 US dollars a year had a lot of spending power because of the conversion rate of US dollars. Well, I had a Mercedes Benz that cost $100,000. I had a Toyota truck, a four-door truck that cost whatever it cost. And I had a a big house and a second house for my bodyguards because I had a team of six bodyguards that shifted three at a time. I had a swimming pool. I had four, five, six motorbikes. I had women that were really interested in being around me and being with me. And all of these things were told to me that this was happiness. This was a successful life. And this is what it takes to have an enjoyable life. And the more that I went in that direction, life just got more and more difficult. The mind became more and more discontent and I became more and more unpeaceful. So I got to a pivotal moment in that experience where I decided to completely shut all of that down. I got rid of the bodyguards, I got rid of the girls, I got rid of the house and the pool and the motorbikes and the Mercedes and the truck and everything. And the more I started letting all of this stuff go, the more peaceful the mind became. I got to the point where I started shaving off my head and wearing simple $5 clothes, eating very simple meals. Instead of eating you know, $300 meals, I was eating $1 meals instead of those. And what I noticed is by knocking down my craving, anger, ignorance, the self and the ego, that I didn't have to exert all this enormous amounts of energy to maintain this empire, so to speak, that I was able to just go within and that's where the real peacefulness came from. It wasn't from this pursuit of pleasant feelings of money and women and material possessions. It was from the pursuit of going within and detaching from all of these things and no longer craving them. But as long as I crave them, then the mind became more and more discontent. So essentially, in this Western culture, in this capitalistic environment that we're all brought up in, we're essentially programmed and conditioned towards craving. We're told that if you get wealth and if you get this and you get that and you get this car and you get this house, that you will be happy. Well, you might be for a period of time, but it's temporary. And the more that you pursue that, the less happy you're gonna be. Because I've been there. I've created businesses in America. I've created businesses here in Thailand. I've had the wealthy lifestyle and none of it led to permanent, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. The only thing that did that was focusing within and training the mind in the Buddhist teachings. You don't have to cut off your hair, wear $5 clothes, give up your career and share these teachings the way that I am. You don't need to model your life after my lifestyle and what I've chosen, just like you don't need to model your lifestyle after the Buddhas. You can still be a business person 
in attain enlightenment. You can be a politician, you can be a librarian, you can be a scientist, you can be a taxi driver, you can be a server, you can be a stay-at-home mom, a stay-at-home dad, you can be a volunteer worker, you can work on activism and things like this. But doing it without craving anger, ignorance, the self, and the ego is the only thing that's going to lead to a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. And you've got to figure out what that looks like for you. So this eightfold path that we talk about, while the path to enlightenment is exactly the same for everybody, that's the path to enlightenment. The way it looks for you is going to be very different than it looks for me. For me, it's living in Thailand. I've got a wife who we sleep in different rooms. We don't have sex anymore. We had a son a while ago, eight years ago. I've given up all my career, my work, and live on the donations and generosity of students. And I share these teachings as a teacher for the rest of my life. And that's my lifestyle. And that's what I found to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. But this Eightfold Path is going to look very different for you in your life. You might decide to live in America, be a business person, not have a wife and kids. Maybe you decide to have a man or a woman as a partner and you're a man or a woman and you choose to have a same gender relationship and you're not interested in having kids because you can't fathom having an intercourse with someone of the opposite sex and that's not something interesting to you. So you're life is going to look very different than mine, but this path that we all practice, that we all understand, it's going to be the same. But the choices that we make about our individual lifestyle is going to be very different from person to person, and this is impermanence. That's great. Well, thank you, David. We have no more questions. Okay. So I would like to end with this last thing that I'm going to share from the book that I wrote, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana. Because this path to enlightenment that the Buddha really initiated 2,500 years ago, it's a pretty deep, pretty intense path. And it requires a lot of dedication. It requires a lot of effort, a lot of energy, a lot of commitment, a lot of resources. It's not easy. It's really not easy, but it's also not difficult. This human life is difficult, especially living in an unenlightened state. The mind struggles. There's lots of challenges, and we might even say misery because of this sickness, aging, and death. But remind yourself, no one ever said life would be easy. But it's also not supposed to be tough. Learning Gautama Buddha's teachings is not easy, but learning and practicing the teachings will ensure that life is not tough. So by you learning and practicing these teachings, it's not easy. But by doing it and by dedicating yourself to meditating two or three times a day to learn this path and implement it in your life, you are essentially ensuring that life is not tough. Life is not supposed to be easy. It's a challenge. That's the whole reason why we're here. But it's not supposed to be tough. We make it tough because of the decisions that we make. Because of this craving, anger, ignorance, the self and the ego, we make this life so tough for ourselves. And when we're in that 
despair, when we're in the sadness, when we're in the loneliness, we just feel like the whole world is coming down upon us. And we just feel like there's no way out of this misery. And life just feels enormously tough. But when you feel those struggles and you feel those challenges, just remember, learning and practicing these teachings is not easy. But if you persevere and you dedicate your time, effort, and energy to learning and applying these teachings in your life, life will gradually get easier and easier because life isn't supposed to be easy, but it's also not supposed to be tough. And by you learning and practicing these teachings, you will ensure that your life is no longer tough. So whatever you're experiencing in life, however challenging that is, however much struggles and challenges you experience, that's the worst it ever needs to get. If you learn and practice these teachings and improve the condition of your mind by developing this life practice, if you develop this life practice, whatever misery that you've experienced so far in life, whatever challenges you've experienced, whatever difficult human existence you've experienced, that's as difficult as it gets. It doesn't get any more difficult once you start learning and practicing these teachings to improve your life. Sure, there's gonna be challenges along the way, but those depth of despair, if you've experienced depression or deep sadness or anxiety or extreme stress or any of these really difficult things in life, if you experience the death of somebody close to you and the misery and despair that comes with that, that's as bad as it gets. Because by you dedicating time, effort, and energy to learn and practice these teachings, life only gets better. It doesn't get worse. There's no such thing as learning and practicing the Buddhist teachings, implementing his teachings, and life gets worse. There's no such thing as that. It doesn't happen. So wherever you've been in the past or wherever you are right now in your life, no matter how challenging or how much struggles you're experiencing, that's the worst that it gets. But the only way to improve it is by you learning and practicing these teachings so that life is not tough. So continue to learn, continue to grow, continue to look for ways to seek more and more guidance on this path. The more you do, the more the condition of the mind's going to improve and you can make your way closer and closer to this enlightened mental state. Sure, there's gonna be challenges. Sure, there's gonna be things that you need to address but you're gonna gain the wisdom that you need on this path that any challenge that arises, you can address it. And you can address it with wholesome decisions and improve your situation. It only takes time, so dedicate time. It took the Buddha six years on this path, so it's gonna take you a little while. It's gonna take you a little while. So rest assured that you're moving in the right direction. So if you've been on this path for six months and you're craving enlightenment really bad, you've only been doing this for six months. Or if you've only been on this path for one or two years or three years and you're craving enlightenment really bad, it's gonna take some time. Or if you've been on this path for 20 or 30 years and you're not seeing the progress that you 
are interested in, that's why it's important to seek out a new teacher and have somebody that you can receive personal guidance with that has resources to help you, that has experienced the same things that you've experienced and can help you along this path. I'm dedicated for the rest of my life to help you progress on this path. The only thing that's holding you back is your own time, effort, energy, and resources. So reach out, ask for help, ask questions in the Facebook group, schedule personal appointments with me, come to these online classes, dive into the podcast, the videos, the audiobook, the book. The more you gradually learn these teachings, you gradually apply them in your life to include meditation, the mind continually improves so that life is not tough because the world can be completely joyful and wonderful for you or it can be a struggle. It's your choice. So make good choices to learn and practice these teachings and you'll see the truth for yourself as the condition of the mind improves. On Wednesday, we're going to be doing chanting. So if you'd like to join at 9 o'clock on Wednesday, we're going to be going through the chants and doing those. And I've come up with kind of some interesting ways that I think we might be able to do those together and kind of learn some more. But if you're interested in receiving personal guidance, we can do that on Wednesday as well. Then on Saturday, we're going to be doing meditation again. We just had our first Saturday session yesterday. It went really, really well. We did about a one-hour meditation. And I got a lot of feedback after the class. People were commenting privately that they really enjoyed that session and they were really appreciative of having that time to do meditation together as a group and supporting each other. And then next Sunday, we're going to be in chapter 16. Craving is the problem. What is the solution? So there's a chapter dedicated specifically to craving. And we're going to cover that on next Sunday at 9 o'clock Thai time. That's chapter 16. But between now and then, continue your meditations, continue to study, continue to join us for chanting, join us for meditation. We've got three classes a week now. And we're building up to our Pali Canon and English program where on January 9th, we're going to start exploring these teachings of the words of the Buddha in these actual books. So I've got some of these books available in PDF, but I don't have all of them. I'm trying to get them and I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to or not. So if you would like to join this program, you may decide that you'd like to purchase a set of these books, which you can get on our website under buddhadailywisdom.com. And you can go into online classes and in there at the very bottom, there's a link for these books so that I can ship them to you. I'm going to keep working on trying to get these by PDF, but I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to do that because the rights to these books are held by a company in America, and I'm not sure if they're going to be willing to release the rights for me to distribute them in PDF. I do have some of the books in PDF format, but I'm trying to kind of do this the right way where we can get all the approvals and all of that kind of stuff before we start really distributing them on wide scale. So between now and the next time I see you in class, enjoy your day. Have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your Sunday, however much you have left, and have a wonderful week. Continue to meditate. Treat everyone around you with politeness, kindness, friendliness, love, and respect. Until next time, have a wonderful day. Sawadee 
Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.